Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. I am Catherine Troyer, and I am delighted to, as always, be joined by Anthony Tresca. Hey there! This is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text, or as today, multiple horror texts, that are, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us for our double episode over The Shining 1977 and The Shining 1980. And I would be remiss to say that we, uh, you know, will also be touching on the 1997 miniseries, which is actually, um, Anthony, so you have your whole, like, story of, you know, when you saw Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time, and that was kind of your first horror. I think for me, the first, one of the first things that I engaged with um, was the Shining miniseries, because it came on TV, and they, like, made such a, a production out of it and I watched it with my dad and I remember like talking to kids about it at school that like we're having nightmares from it um so I think that that might be the closest like origin story that I have so I mean it was uh it was heart. pretty well received at the time I mean it won two primetime Emmys and winning two Emmys as a miniseries particularly as a miniseries base that is kind of coming after the insanely well-regarded and popular 1980 Stanley Kubrick movie. I mean, that's that's pretty good. It is. Uh, and, you know, I won't lie, not all of the um, CGI has, has stood the test of time. Although mm. in, in the film's defense, or miniseries defense, uh, there are lots of films with much bigger budgets whose CGI hasn't stood the test of time. Uh, but I actually think... Um, the lead actor who was one of the brothers on Wings, and I can never remember his name. Um, Steven Weber. Thank you. Steven Weber and Rebecca Dean Mornay, like, they they are awfully gosh darn good. Um, the little boy tends to leave his mouth open a lot um, and, like, breathe heavy, which I won't lie, I've gently mocked him for but but the because acting, you don't think children should breathe right because i i don't think children <laughs> should breathe yes that's that's really what i'm trying to say is it has nothing to do with mouth open it's just the breathing thing um but you know i just i really really like that, the miniseries which is all i need to say is i just need to go out, out on record saying that i like it but i like it in part because of the origin story and in part because um I think it's, well, I don't think. It, it is a more faithful adaptation if we're talking about um, following points in the narrative. For sure. And, like, the sticking point of adaptation and... Because uh, as much as the miniseries is, is, of course, its own thing, and but it's deserving of its own conversation, I think. The vast majority of our conversation today is going to be basically about the differences in adaptation between the original Shining novel by Stephen King and the Shining film by Stanley Kubrick because, I mean, they are incredibly different. Yes, very, very different. 
I mean, although, um, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already knew that. Yeah, that's not a hot take. Yeah, <laughs> it no, didn't no. sound like it was. We were like, brace yourselves for this. Um, that's just, that's a statement of fact. Right? Yeah, it's one that, like, everyone, including Stephen King, right, is very aware of. Because he's and talked about. Yeah, they've talked about how they were in disagreement about what the source of horror was. And honestly, that right there. That alone, right? If everything else had been a, like, um, shot by shot, every scene from the novel in the movie, it wouldn't have mattered because the source of horror for Kubrick and King are different. Mm -hmm. You know, King said that for him it was about real ghosts um, and it was about being haunted by the past in in a literal way. Um, and Kubrick said that he didn't really care about that, that literal haunting at all. No. Um, that he was interested in the idea of, of being haunted by one's past, by one's addictions. Um, and and I also think Kubrick is far more interested in the cabin fever aspect. Yes. Uh, that's, I mean, is present in the original novel, but, I mean, it's not as present as in the film. Yes. Yeah, it's not... It's not the source of horror, right? No, um, it's, it's just it's a, a consequence. Yeah, it's a fact that if you are staying in this hotel for several months, yes, of course, that's the literal thing of cabin fever. And Stephen King acknowledges that to some extent, but that's not the reason that's not the reason that, that Jack goes crazy. Whereas like cabin fever is I would say pretty high on the reasons that he goes off the deep end in the film. Yeah, I, I think that we could see one being the story of what happens when you're stuck to, stuck in a hotel um, with a bunch of malignant ghosts. And the other is about what happens when you're stuck in a hotel with yourself. Um, and, and that's a, that's a really important difference. So I, I want to begin uh, where we often do with our sort of like theory, um, because I think that for adaptation, it's particularly important to to ground what you and I've already been sort of um, alluding to. And that is, is that there are different ways that people think about adaptation studies. Um, and, and one of them is the, the sort of fan response, which I understand. Um, but it, I think it's a little limiting and that's the sort of like fidelity claim, right. And, or the, the focus on fidelity. Um, and it's a focus on, 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 you know, how faithfully the adaptation captures the original and and the reason fidelity is can be a tricky place to to leave the discussion or to to have the entire discussion be is in part because faithful to what right like so i remember um you know i think one of the franchises that often gets talked about the most when it comes to issues of of fidelity of course is like the harry potter franchise right um and i know i mean like i remember people saying like i'm so upset because in the book so-and-so is wearing a blue sweater, but in the movie, they're wearing a green one. And like, I really liked that blue one. But like, so, so people often get really caught in the, the weeds or the minutiae of fidelity, right? Um, and it goes from there to, I was really upset because this scene wasn't in the adaptation and I felt the scene was integral to communicating the the theme, right? Which is, is a bigger issue too. Um, issues of fidelity of I don't feel like the adaptation caught the spirit um, or the the sort of essence of the original and all of that that whole range is right it's really squishy it's like it's really hard to 
to have fidelity criticism be anything other than a sort of like audience response in a lot of ways. And honestly, it's hard to, I know I'm going to offend some people when I say this, but it's hard to like view anyone who is like the, what, how I judge adaptations is based on how faithful it is to the original, because it just becomes like a nitpicking kind of thing of like, Oh, this tiny, this one sentence line, they cut that and totally ignored it. And so like, I am totally done with this adaptation. I, I, I just feel it's a little bit, it, it just descends into basically fan nitpicking. Yes. And, and I like, I like how you said that, um, because the, the theorist that I want to bring in is probably my favorite, of which there are many excellent, but probably one of my favorite adaptation studies um, theorists. And her name is uh, Linda Hutchin. And she has a book called Theory of Adaptation. And she actually says, um, she says, of more interest to me is the fact that the morally loaded discourse of fidelity is based on the implied assumption that adapters aim simply to reproduce the adapted text, right? And and so there's this, I, I think sometimes with the like, the deep seated, you know, like emotions, it's because it can be easy to remember that the decision to adapt your beloved text wasn't necessarily so that you'd have another version of your beloved text, uh-huh. right? There's lots of reasons, hopefully independent of financial, but but there's lots of reasons that people are, are moved to adapt something. I, I think I, I agree a lot with that in the sense that there's no need to get bogged down in trying to be faithful to the original. It's just not important. And it also asserts if your claim is fidelity, fide- faithful to who? Your version of how you read the book? There are so many other people who have entirely different reactions and choose different things that are important from the original work that they think are crucial to ha- uh, to making it a proper adaptation. Saying that it needs to be faithful is a foolish game and it's impossible because your version of what makes an adaptation faithful is not the same thing as what makes a version adi- uh, faithful to somebody else. Exactly. And and if a text is good, right, um, and by good, I mean a rich, nuanced text, then, as you said, um, how, what I focus on as being the most valuable aspect, the, the family dynamics, for example, it may not be the, the aspect that you find um, most interesting, but it doesn't mean that either one is not present or of equal value. It just means that it's a rich enough text, right, that it can be approached from all of these perspectives. And so I think you're right that um, this faithfulness discussion often acts as though there is a linear way into a text and there's only one entrance, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas a good text has multiple entrances and exits, right? You can approach it from so many different angles. And that's really what Hutchin kind of says. Uh, so I, I want to just share a couple of her ideas because I think it's going to explain why you and I are going to have the conversation we're going to have um, about The Shinings. So she says, to deal with adaptations as adaptations is to think of them as to use a Scottish poet and scholar Michael Alexander's great term, inherently palpimcestuous works haunted at all times by their adapted texts if we know that prior text we always feel its presence shadowing the one we are experiencing directly when we call a work an adaptation we openly announce its overt relationship to another work or works and so she says that that you know in order to think of an adaptation we can't think of it in its own aesthetic right but we do need to think of it in in this larger conversation right and so uh palpin says is, is something that you can read on sort of multiple levels or multiple angles. Um, 
and that word haunted is good because it kind of creates that like shadow effect right it's almost like if you have a document that you can see imprinted on it um earlier versions right like or where people scratch stuff out right like that's kind of what what comes to mind um for most people when they think of a palimpsest and so it's that sort of idea and so she she gives us some really excellent imagery other than haunted she says that you know we can think of it as this formal entity that is about transcoding um and sometimes sometimes transcoding is, is switching from one medium to another but it can also be a shift um ontologically it could be a shift in terms of ideology um then there's the process of creation which is involves reinterpretation and then there's also the process of reception right um and how we experience them through our memory of other works that resonate with this version right so you know what's what she's arguing and this is not an easy this is not an easy claim to to support right is she saying that like adaptations are so fascinating because they're they're shadow texts um and and so we they are always uh, affected by our interactions with the other texts that are the um, original but the original might not be for us the first text that was made right so if you watch the shining the movie first and then read the book um the shining the novel may feel to you like the the second secondary text it's, it's kind of like to use another horror example it's kind of like the tethered in us it's kind of like whichever there is no it doesn't really matter which one's the originals they're inevitably connected and whichever one you interact with first is like what you view as the original and there's this other tethered thing to it tethered version of it i think that's a lovely um i think that's a lovely analogy and I think it's it's a perfect way to think about it. Because I think that the, these two texts are are incredibly tethered together. And I think the fan reaction has been very, is very, very similar to like what you would expect of like Jordan Peele's characters in there. It's like one is good and one is totally evil, but they're tethered yes. together. And yes. which version of, which adaptation, uh, sorry, which version of The Shining you prefer uh you probably think of the other one as being like the inferior bad version that's unfortunately tethered to this is your, true. your good version. And and it's funny because there there are people who who the version that they think is the right version is Kubrick's film. Right? Mm-hmm. Who see Those the novel. Those people are me. Those people are me. I'm coming um, out strong. I'm coming out strong. Okay, well sadness. Um <laughs> Because I, so I definitely, definitely, definitely like the novel better as a text that I'm, as a text that I want to play with. Um, But I I feel like increasingly, the more I I force myself to to remember Hutchins' framework, the, the less I find myself interested in whether or not I like one version better than the other. Now I still see both of them in the in the Hudgens framework. Uh, both of them are clearly important, and I again I'm just coming in. I know I'm going to offend a lot of people in this episode. I mean, you've offended me, so I, you know. I, I I'm but the original novel. I guess let's maybe we should just jump into a discussion here. That's this yeah, is where we can start. It begins. Let's talk about the original novel. It's good. I really like it. I read the novel first uh, before I saw the film, so. Um, it's not even that uh, my viewing of the film made that the original in my mind. It wasn't. I read the novel first, and I really like it. I think 
Stephen King um, is really good here. He's not always, as long-time listeners know, that I'm not always a fan of Stephen King. Partic- and this was one that is, it's one of his, it's a longer book. It is a longer book. Um, but, and I usually have problems with that because I usually am like, Stephen King, um, someone needed to tell you that not every single sentence that comes out of your brain is genius. But in this version, I actually didn't ever feel that way. I like, I think because the novel is Because it's still early, right? Yeah. Like, it's still early enough in his career that it's long because the story needs it to be long, not because somebody is afraid of being that editor who tells Stephen King to edit. I mean, it was yeah. only his third published novel. So, I mean, like, yeah, this is early Stephen King. This is Stephen King before Stephen King was Stephen King. So I also read the novel first. Um... And it's my favorite King novel, um, followed by Misery, for those that are just curious to know. Uh, mainly because I'm a sucker for story within stories. Like, you'll almost guarantee that I'll like your book if you have that going on. Um, but, so so it's my, it's my favorite of his, um, which I think says a lot right there. Uh, but let's, let's talk about, let's kind of dig deeper, right? So we've established that we both like it. And that we both read it first. What is it that, in our opinion, makes for a good work of horror here? I really did care about these characters. Stephen King does a really remarkable job of setting up these characters who are, I mean, Jack is profoundly an unlikable character. He is a profoundly disturbed individual. And yet, on multiple occasions, I still was like, ugh, I just wish things could work out, but they're not going to. He can't. Um, so I really enjoyed the characters. I think also the overlook as a location for horror is a really, really interesting uh, location. I mean, it's based on a real place that Stephen King went to. It's, it's a beautiful hotel. The Stanley is gorgeous. Yeah, it's a... I mean, this using this hotel, this deserted hotel in the middle of winter as your vehicle for horror was a... I mean, that's a good choice. Um, so yeah, and I, I think that if, you're, if your location and your characters are good, you're, you're setting yourself up for a good story. Yeah, so one of the things that we can talk more about when we get to Kubrick's version uh, is the character of Jack. So I think you're right, though, that um, King does a really good job of making you want to see, to, to have Jack not go down the path we, we know from the beginning he's going to go down. And I think one of the ways that um, that has developed is that his creation of the family unit is really strong, right? Um, both Jack and Wendy are not perfect parents, but they're loving parents. Um, and, and if you break down the novel um, sort of by pages, right, a good chunk of the, of the novel is spent pre-overlook yeah. and uh, overlook pre-shutting down of the winter and i would argue that it's because we need to we need to see jack as as someone that danny deserves to have as a father if jack could just be the man that we need him to be right jack makes a ton of terrible choices even in the real world which i think is real. it sets it up because you're like well if he makes real choices out here in the real world where there are more tangible real world consequences when he is isolated, he's just gonna he's gonna be making even worse choices, and it's gonna make sense. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a tragic going back to sort of the 
the Greek concept of tragedy with, with this like inevitability, right? There's a tragic nature to King's novel um, because I, th I think you're absolutely correct. We, we don't expect anything else because when he's not in the literal as well as figurative boiler room, right? Like he still can't make the right decisions. No. Um, and, and so we watch him tragically never be different than, than he's been predispositioned to be. He, Jack is very frustrating as a character, which is I think is as necessary. It's necessary. He's not a good. He's not a good guy. He's a. But I think something that I find really interesting is I always like following these characters who think of themselves differently than they actually are, and Jack is such a good example of that. And he's a character who we get to spend so much time with in the novel, and Stephen King does a really good job of getting us kind of inside his headspace. And that's difficult with a character like this, because I think you run the risk of, like, uh, idolizing a character like this, and uh, I've, I've had problems with this in things before, but I don't think that that's the case here. I think that Stephen King is, by allowing us into the headspace, is not trying to make Jack a better character. It's just like, I want you to understand him. You're not gonna, you may not ultimately, at the end of the day, still agree with him, but you have to get in this head and you have to understand. Yes. And that is a real advantage of the the novel medium, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I think one of the hardest things for anyone who's interested in adaptation to a particularly a, a cinematic medium is is that it is really hard to to show us the discrepancy that exists between someone's actions and someone's perception of their actions. And you're absolutely correct that Jack really do thinks that he's, you know, he's, he's gotten the raw end of the deal, um, that he is uh, a really good man who has a little tiny problem. Um, and, and we see that contrasted so sharply from, from his actions, right? Where like, it is his fault. No one else's um, that, you know, he, he like abuses a student. Um, it, it is his fault and no one or like his addiction is not minor. It's big. Right. Like, and so I, yeah, I think you're absolutely correct that, that the novel does a really good job of developing that. And then ultimately that's what seals his fate. It's his job for that. He failed to check the boiler room and maintain the levels within the boiler room. And so, uh, I mean, his, his son knows this and he knows that it's about to explode. He gets everybody out, but Jack is not. Jack doesn't. It's from his own direct failure to fulfill his responsibility. And we see this over and over again. As a teacher, he fails. As a parent, he fails. As a husband, he fails. And just as a manager of this hotel, he fails in a huge way because the hotel is bam, boom. Yeah. And earlier you said that the, the choice of the Overlook as location, you know, was, was a rather brilliant decision, but... I'm going to argue that that what part of what makes the novel so, in my opinion, just terrific is that the Overlook is only a location in, in the most like, in the strictest sense of, of it being a physical place. It's a character, right? And I mean, the oh, Overlook yeah. is a character. And I think for me, that's that's one of my favorite parts about about the the novel is all of the sections where uh, Jack is down in the basement and he like finds the old scrapbooks, you know, and he's like building this history of the hotel. Um, and, and like, we can actually, you know, we understand 
the history of certain rooms, but we also understand that like the that the, it's alive, right? And it's alive, of course, because of the ghosts. Um, but there's the overlook is the most important character in my opinion in the the novel and and that doesn't happen very often right oftentimes locations are just settings but i think king does such a good job of of making it so that you understand the overlook through grady right the old caretaker um through um the Again, the the piecemealing of the history um, through the various ghosts that the the Torrances encounter, but I think for me that's probably my hands down my favorite part is is how developed. Again, this takes a considerable amount of time, which is why I don't have a problem with the book being a little longer to make this be as strong and nuanced of a figure, right? Because you said that like Jack at the end of the day ends up failing, but we knew he was going to all along. Um, the Overlook is is too greedy, right? Um, you know, and like, it has never worked for the Overlook to be that greedy before um, because it's still searching for the perfect caregiver. So like, it's really just watching these characters make mistakes that we know from the beginning are going to, to be their, their downfall and watching how it unfolds. Yeah. And I think this is a good place to transition. Ooh, before we do though, I have one other thing to say. I also think, and we can talk about this in relationship with Kubrick, but Stephen King has a particular writing de- device that he uses a lot, and that is the parenthetical, um, where he'll be in the middle of a sentence and then he'll like break down into a new paragraph and have a parenthetical that'll be something like, you know, um, and he heard, and he thought to himself, um, there's a there's something definitely wrong with this end of of parenthetical and then it'll continue on like he does that all the time and he does it a lot in the shining um and i think that again in the shining it works perfectly because this is all about the headspace and it's all about the sort of like the contrast of those like random thoughts that we have of like wasn't there something i'm forgetting no there must not be um and and that's that's again really hard to duplicate in a, a cinematic form so i think that's the other thing that's really neat about the novel and I, and I think that this is a good, this is a natural, provides a natural transition into talking about The Shining film, because I think what is more important to Kubrick is not, he doesn't really care about getting us into the headspace of, not at of all. his characters. I, I, and I am just going to go ahead and get it out there on record so that um, people know. I do really like Stanley Kubrick. Um, I do really like... Um, his visual sensibility and his direction and kind of his something that he gets criticized a lot for is the coldness of his films but I find that to be an, an, a really big strength in this film sometimes I, I will even I can acknowledge that Kubrick's coldness does go too far and like it kind of does create a bit of an alienation between what you're watching and what you're kind of Kubrick is trying to emulate. Like sometimes in um, Dr. Strangelove, uh, there's some points in which you're kind I, I, when I was watching that film, I was kind of like, eh, I wish kind of maybe he was a little bit more sentimental here. I never once thought that in The Shining because I think the coldness that uh, Kubrick is able to bring to these characters and this isolated location is perfect. It's perfect. This is where I 
I really have to see this as not not the bringing to life the beloved novel that I adore, right? But as a, here is a rich text, I'm going to show you one way we could play with that text. Um, so I'm not always a, a Kubrick fan, um, in part for the very reasons you mentioned, um, that I, I don't always particularly appreciate that sort of voyeuristic, cold um, distance that, that Kubrick is a stellar uh, at creating. Um, but but I think, again, if I can separate it as, from that linear path and, and see it as this sort of reinterpretation, you're absolutely correct that um, that this film needs to to be cold and, and distant because that's that's part of the, the affect that he's trying to create. That's part of his source of horror. And speaking of that source of horror, Kubrick fundamentally, when he's talking about the themes, he's talked about, he obviously has talked about like kind of where he started. He was, it was coming off of Barry Lyndon, um, which was a film he made in 1975 that wasn't a big hit. Um, and so he was like, I need to do something a little bit more commercially minded as well as would be artistically successful. So he was like, I want to do a horror adaptation. And he was reading a bunch of books, and he hated all of them. He was just like, throw them away, until he got to The Shining, in which he just was super engrossed. So he it was clearly The Shining that did inspire him. However, he talks about what was fundamentally really interesting to him about the book was that there's something inherently wrong with the human personality. There's an evil side to it. One of the things that horror stories can do is to show us the archetypes of the unconscious. We can see the dark side without having to confront it directly. And I think that this quote really is a good place that shows the splintering between how what Kubrick thinks is the most interesting part of The Shining and what Stephen King thinks is the most interesting part of The Shining. For Kubrick, it's the characters. And for King, it's the hotel. Yes. Which we go back to this, it's the difference in, in what they interpret as being the, the source of horror, right? Um, and, and I think you're absolutely correct that, um, so there's, I'm sure you've seen, and I'm sure the people um, listening have seen the, the sort of uh, famous um, mock trailer of Kubrick's The Shining that's set up as a rom-com. Um, there's a reason that that works for the Kubrick film that actually it wouldn't work if you were to try to do it for the novel. And that's because from the beginning, um, Jack is created as a character that has, that is alienating. It's not just that he's alienated everyone. He's an alienating presence that is simultaneously charismatic, right? Um, and of course, Jack Nichols, Nicholson is, is, gives us partially, um, that through the his performance but the jack of kubrick's film is not he's not relatable he's not a good dad he's he's not none of these things and so the film is asking us more like what happens when we realize that we've been caught in this this um like what's it called um like this spiral effect right where we can't escape the presence of someone that is just wrong um and and that's that's not really what what the source of horror is, or that's not really what King was looking at. Which I find found really interesting is because the Jack from Stephen King's original novel, in I think, takes more 
is takes more horrible actions. He is a much worse. He takes a, he yes. makes a lot worse decisions, and we are we are shown him messing up a lot more. However, I still think that the Jack from the Kubrick movie is a lot more unnerving and is present and is actually ultimately the worst of the two. And for me, that's what kind of makes him a little bit more interesting because I really like getting to putting this character who starts is already fundamentally kind of broken. He is doing a a subpar job at masking it. Sometimes it it is masked a little bit, but this is not a character who can really even keep it together. Um, and we're showing that right away. There's a, a tragicness to King's Jack that is not present in, in Kubrick's. Kubrick's is, I think you're right, that, that we see um, it is more, more heartbreaking, the things that Jack in, in King's book does, because we're like, but really, remember, you are a good dad. You are capable of being a good dad. Now you're trying to kill your son. Whereas in in The Shining, Kubrick style, I don't think at any point where are we surprised or like traumatized by um, Jack's insane behavior at the end. It's but we are horrified by it because it's scary, right? There's something about his performance that again is so so simultaneously human because there's there's no um, ghosts or haunting in it, but it's also the antithesis of of how we understand humanity down to the faces that nicholson can make right um that are that feel uncanny right there's an uncanniness to kubrick's jack that isn't present in kings yeah and i think that just goes down to the reason that at least at the overlook that jack fails so spectacularly in kings is not necessarily because of him as a human person. It's more because it's like, uh, obviously, it's a, it's, a, it's a whole extended metaphor for addiction and giving in to your, to your worst habits, and these ghosts allow him to, to tap into his worst impulses, and that's the reason why everything ultimately is so bad. In Kubrick's version, the reason that Jack messes up is because he's a fundamentally broken human being. And... For me, watching this broken human being having to, for a little while in the beginning when there are other people, try to masquerade as a normal person is deeply interesting. And then seeing this broken human being being put in this isolated location and undergoing cabin fever, something that even at our best, humans are not good at doing. And this is someone who is at their worst. Either being forced into this situation, I, I, I just find that really compelling. And, of course, then Kubrick is able to shoot that in such an interesting and compelling way that really just, like, it forces you to be a voyeur into a situation in which no one would want to be a voyeur in. And I'm glad you 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 mentioned in there um, how he shot it, right? So the cinematography. This is where... I can't help but appreciate this film. The film and and Kubrick's, you know, decisions as the director for particularly shooting the the overlook. Um I 
it's no secret. I really like films that, that make us question our awareness of, of place. And whereas in The Shining, the King novel, I feel like I could, I could navigate that space. I wouldn't want to, but like, I would know how to get from like the caregiver's cabin down to the kitchen because we've kind of gone on that journey. Um, Kubrick denies us that in, in the film. It is, it is disjointed. It is broken. Um, it is maze-like. Um, the, and, and of course some of that is to mimic the affect of, of a hotel, right? In the sense that like when we're in a hotel, um, it always feels weirdly the same, um, right? The sort of placelessness of like, I've been here. Yeah. But it's more than that, right? So it's, it's also a placelessness, um, because even though we should, because the characters by, by the time they've been in the, this hotel for a long time, know where things are. We're, we're denied the, the sort of establishing shots that we would need to, to understand the overlook. And, and even though we see a lot of it, right, we see so much of it from that um, low camera height, not angled, which is so brilliant, where we're following Danny from behind and we actually cannot see what's in front of him, um, which is just fantastic. Um, and so it feels... I'm going to go back to that word broken, right? It feels so broken and, and it's beautiful. Like it is the most beautiful depiction of a hotel or uh, of, of many, of a place that I, I can think of in most films. I just think it's beautiful. Um, and I think so that is important. The placelessness of the overlook and this, the overlook is not a character in, uh, Kubrick's version. It is a pl- it is a location that is to be probed and prodded in and to terrify us, but it's not a character. And I think the placelessness is really important to Kubrick, and hence why we have to see the third act change. The third act is where I, a lot of significant alterations occur within the actual linear narratives of both texts, because Really, up until the third act, there are backstories that get cut, and a lot of things are condensed for the film. Like, there is no extended sequence before the Overlook in the film. We're just, we're immediately driving to the Overlook. And that is a, that's a significant change, but technically, in terms of linear story, the story, that's not a change. It's just, it's it's a change of where we start, but it's not a change of the story, per se. Um... The third act has to change, I think, because this placelessness is far more important to Kubrick than it is to Stephen King. And we literally are in a maze in which we are denied the opportunity to know how it's, to know what it looks like. We are never, ever giving any shots that help cue the audience in on where these two characters are in relationship to each other, Danny and Jack. It's horrifying. It's you at any moment you could turn the corner you the uh Danny could turn the corner and Jack is right there and he is killed that's i mean that's terrifying and if i can this is going to sound like the most ridiculous statement that has ever been uttered um but for me the third acts reveal what i believe in my heart is like a fundamental truth and and that is, is that I don't actually think of Stephen King as a horror writer. Um, I think of him as a fantastic writer 
who really understands the things that that causes fear and anxiety and and yes he's using horror tropes but at the end of the day his narratives are about the inherent potential goodness of people and then i don't i don't know if i think that's what horror is um and i realize like how can you how can you say something's not horror if it's about a haunted hotel where a man's trying to kill his family? And I would say the third act uh, is is how you cannot say it um, because at the end, you know, he pulls he he goes through with it in the novel. Um, he knowing that he's going to save his family and doing so, um, you know, the the chef comes back and saves them. You know, I mean that's whereas you're right that um, the third act in Kubrick's film that is horror because we understand that there's no escaping this monster uh in this place that is broken and and meaningless uh and it's that's a huge difference right it's so much more than just the addition of a maze scene um it's it's the like you said it's the creation of something that that feels horrifying or terrifying in a way that that the novel doesn't and i think that it's just an overarching thing of like stephen king if you do want to consider it horror you at the very least have to be say it is incredibly affirmative horror because ultimately at the end of the day their their family is kind of allowed to get out and they're not living a super they're not living the most normal life but actually at the end in that epilogue they kind of are it's like yeah i was gonna say it's not until doctor sleep really that we understand that it's a little bit more broken um that than we thought it was but you know king is out now it's said that's right that it should make you kind of see what's taboo and then celebrate what's good yeah whereas um with stanley kubrick's adaptation of the shining he is doing an incredibly disaffirmative adaptation which i think from the start from the start from the absolute start and the third act really just drives that home because it is cold and relentless and we ha- see we see jack freeze in a way that the novel doesn't allow us to because Jack is blown up, but that's kind of in the abstract. It's not as powerful or as cold or menacing as seeing Jack then run around this maze trying to kill his son and only to then literally be left frozen solid Yes, out there. Yeah, the the Shining Kubrick style is about um, what happens when we have family members who are what are known as like family annihilators, right? The, the people, um, I think that's the official term to refer to people who end up killing family members, right? Um, and and you're right, we see it from start to finish. And just because he dies at the end, right, um, doesn't doesn't in any way alleviate, I don't think, the the threat of, of this type of character, right? It's profoundly disaffirmative. These characters are broken and traumatized at the end of Kubrick's version, and we're led to believe that they're not going to be okay. They're not going to be able to live a normal, happy life And after this. This is... this is Danny is definitely going to be traumatized forever. Um, uh, what's the name of the... Show? Wendy. I was new. I was like Shelley Duvall. <laughs> um, Wendy is definitely broken by the end in a way that's just not true in the novel 
And and I have to say, when it comes to the Wendy character, so I do have a couple things that I that don't thrill me about the the film, and and I know that this is going to be something that a lot of people are going to disagree with me on, but I'm not. I don't like Shelley Duvall's Wendy, and I don't like Shelley Duvall's Wendy precisely because she does a perfect job of making the Wendy that this film needs, um, and that is is that she's she's a broken shell of a woman from the start. Um, because we are supposed to understand, like you said, that, um, this, this brokenness, this violence would happen no matter what. It's just allowed to happen a little bit faster, um, in, in the, in the overload. In the isolation Um, that cabin fever produces. But that, you know, that this is clearly a family that has been manipulated and scarred long before they faced the horror of, of the hotel. Um, and so she does a fantastic job of being of being that version of Wendy, I just, it's just a lot for me to, to stomach as someone who, who really does need as much as possible strong developed female characters. And, and I have yet to encounter many, um, film auteurs, particularly that are um, of the age of, of Kubrick, but also like Hitchcock um, and and most of them, right? Like um, there's a whole list of, of them. They're not good at crafting female characters worth worth anything. Um, and and that's that's hard. It is hard for me to to be OK with that. I, I don't. And I, I think the only reason that it is kind of passable for me is because I don't think that Kubrick wants you to be okay with how Wendy is being treated because it's like, no, if obviously if you're married to a, this monster manipulator who is Jack, you would never be allowed to be developed as a person. You you would never be allowed to be independent of this character. He wouldn't he wouldn't allow it. And so I don't know if we're necessarily if we're supposed to be okay or comfortable with this depiction, but still that doesn't negate the fact that we do still, as an audience, have to see this woman be constantly put through hell and is not allowed to be a character. Yeah, like a I think I, I think the reason that I can't just see it as a sort of isolated to the narrative is that I, I feel like it is a discernible pattern um, in other Kubrick films. It and is. So, You're absolutely And so right. <laughs> I, I can't say, oh, well, this is his intent, even if it is his intent, right? This is his intent in this film because I think it's a... I think it's a, a very clearly seen sort of um, thing that he just kind of does, right? But but you're right. It is the character we need for this particular version. The other thing that I, I have a quibble about that I, I just think is worth mentioning because I, I was watching a documentary yesterday and it referenced the scene and it reminded me that I, I'm bothered by it. Um, there, the, the few times that we do see the ghosts or the, you know, the party goers, the revelers, um, there's a queerness to them that is explicit, right? I mean, there's like a scene where we are more or less aware that someone is giving someone else a blowjob, right? Like, um, and 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 I, I must admit that I I do grow rather tired, and I and as particularly in a film that's 1980s, so we're talking, you know, smack dab in the middle of our sort of gay phobia version you know like as if we've ever gotten over it but you know the 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 big 80s version of gay phobia um and there's a queerness to the to the revelers that like that suggests that what is disturbing about them 
is the fact that they are queer, not only queer as in um, in terms of sexual orientation, but in terms of their um, affect, right? The way they dress, the fact that they are um, engaging in frivolity that is not appropriate to the moment. And, and that, I'm, that, I must admit, also doesn't really sit very well with me. I'm glad we had this conversation because I feel like my appreciation for Kubrick's film has, has risen. Um, it didn't, you know, my, my appreciation for the novel remains, remains steady and strong, but I'm glad we talked through this because I think I can appreciate this film, this, this adaptation set more because you've reminded me that, that it's, it is a great film it is an interesting adaptation. It is not a faithful adaptation. No, and I don't think I don't think Kubrick is ever intending it to be a faithful adaptation. I truly think if you ask Kubrick about issues of fidelity, he would be like, "Why are you even talking about this? This is what do you go, go read your book?" <laughs> and I will say that the result of that is something we don't get in a lot of film adaptations, and that is that it is a it is a masterful film. Yeah. Right? Like, a lot of times film adaptations are, like, movies that just happen to be on film. Uh-huh. Right? But, like, his, he, like it or not, he, he pays attention to cinematography in a way that you cannot ignore. Yeah. I'm also really... And sound. Yeah. And sound. And sound. We didn't everything. even talk about yeah. sound. I'm also really glad that we had this conversation. I still think, ultimately, at the end of the day, I am going to gravitate... I gravitate towards horror texts that are disaffirmative in nature. So Kubrick's, how Kubrick views the cabin fever and the this dysfunction of character is more interesting to me than what Stephen King's um, more affirmative worldview um, lends itself to in the novel. But I, I, I'm always happy to talk about that Stephen King novel because I really do think it is also an excellent work. It's just I perhaps agree more with the disaffirmative view point that Kubrick will use. Yeah, it goes back to the source of horror, right? Which one, which one grabs you and, and keeps the hold of you in the dark of the night? Um, and we didn't talk at all about the music, which is a pity, both because that score is iconic, but also because the wait, there are more adaptations. Oh yeah. Um, for, we're so, going to be doing something um, pretty special for this episode uh, work and that we're going to hope to be doing more often and that we're going to be, if you enjoyed this episode and you're like, I want a little bit more, well, we've got more for you. We're going to be yay. releasing uh, two uh, videos on YouTube that go a little bit deeper into uh, one, an adaptation, an opera adaptation of Ugh. The Shining and then we're going to be going a little bit uh, more of a deep dive into adaptation theory on in a separate video. I cannot wait to to talk a little bit more about the opera that neither of us have seen, but both of us have strong <laughs> feelings about uh -huh. anyway. It's exciting. And so uh, those links, that link to our YouTube channel is obviously in the description of this podcast, as is the links to all of our social medias. Be sure to give us a like, check a, check out our videos there, uh, and of course share us with your friends. Word of mouth is the best way to get us out there. And we hope that you will join us for uh, our next podcast episode, which is continuing our exploration of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, and so we will be looking at 
uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. Thank you for joining us. Have a great day.